Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Climate change has been a growing factor in the behavior of wildfires in the West. Shifting weather patterns have led to drier conditions across the region. Forests that usually are accustomed to arid conditions are being stressed even more by the current situation. During 2020, we saw the largest fires on record burn in Rocky Mountain National Park, and this year, Lassen Volcanic National Park in California has endured the flames of the Dixie Fire. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. To gain a better understanding of the fire situation in the West and how climate change is affecting wildfire, we've reached out for an expert to discuss the situation. This conversation was recorded a week ago, so while the overall discussion about climate change and wildfires remains pertinent, to find the latest on the Dixie Fire and its impact on Lassen Volcanic National Park, visit the National Incident Information System at incidweb.nwcg.gov and search for the Dixie Fire. We'll be back in a minute with our guest. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. Do you love one-click shopping? With our partner, Interior Federal Credit Union, you can earn rewards just by making online purchases. You're missing out on rewards points if you're not using their Visa credit and or debit card. By adding these cards to your online shopping cart with Amazon, Walmart, or other shopping retailers, you can earn a point for every dollar you spend. Binge watching a lot with streaming services like Netflix and Hulu? Use their card for recurring payments to earn points as well. Visit their website, interiorfcu.org, and read their blog for more details and how to apply. Nova Scotia. 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kajimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Dixie Fire in California has drawn more and more attention as it grows and grows in Northern California. How has it impacted Lassen Volcanic National Park? And what lessons are this fire and fire conditions teaching us? To help answer those questions, we're joined by Robin Wills, the National Park Service's Chief of Fire and Aviation for the Pacific West region. Welcome to The Traveler, Robin. Hey, thank you. Good morning. The Dixie Fire has pretty quickly turned into the nation's biggest fire. I think it's over 700,000 acres. What, what's driving it so, so quickly? Well, conditions of the 21 fire season have created um, a, a number of unprecedented fires uh, across the, the West. 
exceptionally dry fuels in Northern California, definitely supporting large fire growth. We've also had a whole series of weather events with the type of weather that really facilitates large fire growth. That's all aligned with um, a level of activity that um, has created resource shortages and those key firefighting resources that um, really are necessary to gain perimeter control on large fires, aircraft, hotshot crews are, are really in, in high demand. So all those things together have, have created a situation where um, we have now in the Dixie uh, largest single fire in the history of California and um, anticipating that that fire is going to continue to grow for some period into the future. Yeah. Back in 1988, I was on the ground in Yellowstone National Park covering the, the fires there that swept across the park. And, you know, that was a long time ago. And it seemed that the Yellowstone fires were the fire event of that summer. I don't seem to recall many other fires across the West. Is that, is that accurate? Is my memory serving me right? Um, that, that's not entirely accurate. Um, again, different fire season and different in scope and scale, but compared to 2021, but similar in nature in that in 1988, 1987 also were big fire years. So uh, tremendous attention on the Yellowstone fires and remembering there were multiple fires in a complex, many of which burned together mm-hmm. uh, during uh, 88 Yellowstone. But it was also a very active fire year um, across the, the West. 1988, there were large fires in California uh, going on simultaneously with Yellowstone, but that, that was the fire of attention. A very, very significant fire in that year. And, Significant fire in terms of our history of uh, fire management in the West. You know, I don't recall um, climate change being mentioned so so much back in '88. I don't think it was in the the national ver- vernacular at the time. What what can you say? I mean, we hear a lot these days that climate change is driving the, the fires we're seeing now. Can you compare the the two the two eras in firefighting the the late '80s, the mid '80s versus what's going on now in terms of fire conditions and what's driving these fires? I was uh, was a younger firefighter in 1988, and um, this idea that changing climate was really driving um, fire events was was not part of our consciousness then. But it's not to say that climate was not contributing um, to large fire events at that time. I I believe to today the fires we see. Uh, in the Western United States in 2021, fires that I was working on in Australia last year in 2020 and, and the 2020 fire season here in California in the, and also in the Pacific Northwest are largely driven by changing climate. Climate is not the only contributor to the kind of large intense fires that we're experiencing today. 
uh, fuel conditions contribute to that also in some ecosystems. But it really is a climate signature that's global in nature. Again, we've, we've seen a changing scope and scale of fires in the Western United States, in Australia, in um, parts of Europe, in Central and South America. And they are driven by changes specifically in things like the pattern of precipitation and uh, temperature and in the magnitude and scale of specific weather events, those events with conditions that facilitate large fire growth. So um, climate is, is a, a really significant contributor to the experiences we're having now with large fires. There have been calls um, recently that there, there needs to be more prescribed burns to, to try and reduce some of the fuels out there across the, the national forest, and I, I'm assuming the state forests as well. Can, can that be done on a scale to blunt some of these big fires, in your opinion? Well, it certainly could, but it, the, the challenges of um, implementing prescribed fire at a meaningful ecological scale and a meaningful operational scale is really, really challenging. Um, challenging because of the risks and impacts that can be associated with prescribed fire. So there are significant risks um, when we uh, purposely uh, light fires and, and use fire as a management tool, there's always gonna be smoke. And smoke may be one of the, the biggest impediments to uh, using prescribed fire again at, at a meaningful ecological and operational scale. Creates a lot of smoke, um, that smoke impacts the public and creates challenges for us. We also have uh, a workforce on the federal side that's still largely built around seasonal firefighting and mm -hmm. uh, a workforce that's built to be prepared and be engaged during the active part of the fire season. That fire season is um, getting longer and longer. And it leaves us very little time on what we call the shoulder seasons to engage in um, active management, prescribed fire. And then we're gonna move into the period of the winter when conditions don't really support prescribed fire. Um, so th those, those challenges are real. Prescribed fire is a part of the solution, but the implementation at a scale that would help to catch us up to something proactive is, is very difficult. Does it make sense to to turn that seasonal firefighting force into a year round job? I mean, well, I certainly believe it it does make sense given um, where we're at and what we can anticipate about the future. Uh, we need to move to a more permanent um, firefighting workforce. We need to move to uh, a firefighting workforce that is more focused on career positions 
and a professional series specific to firefighting, a, a program and a firefighting organization that is holistic in nature. So it includes those preparedness resources that we depend on to fight fire, but it, it includes a very significant portion um, of that organization being focused on things like planning and fire science and uh, prescribed fire treatments. So I, I do think that there's, there's an organization in place that, that did service well. It's the organization that I, I came up in early in my career, but it's a different future and it's, a, it's time to really rethink how we organize and how we fund and how we address the long-term questions of wildland fire and fuels management. Yeah, and I think um, the Dixie Fire might make a pretty good argument for not only a, a year-round firefighting force, but but a larger one. Um, I was told that uh, one of every four uh, firefighters in the federal workforce were, were on the Dixie Fire. Is that accurate? Yeah, I, I can't speak to that um, specific number, but I can tell you that for much of the 30, almost 40 days of, of the Dixie, um, there's been 5,000 to 6,000 personnel uh, on that incident. It's split into two zones. It has two um, different um incident management organizations, uh, uh, CAL FIRE state type one incident management team and a federal type one incident management team and a very large number of personnel of every description in, in the firefighting toolbox. Uh, engines of, of all descriptions from structure engines to wildland engines, lots of heavy equipment, Lots of hand crews, large number of aircraft. So it's it's a very, it has been up to this time a very heavily staffed incident. Yeah, and then when you, you talk about the supporting infrastructure, I mean, uh, they need to eat and they need uh, um, supporting facilities. It's it's really quite, it takes on a, a whole community of its own moving around um, as the fire moves. It's an amazing part of um you know, this, this thing that we do every summer, traveling around the West to remote locations and in, engaging large fires. What you just mentioned, I think, is not always transparent to people. There's a, a very, very large infrastructure organization that supports firefighting because we do have to feed and house and shower and provide fuel and supplies to, in the case of the Dixies, 6,000 individuals. And that needs to happen overnight, often yeah. in very remote places. Um, and it's, a, it's an amazing logistical undertaking and tremendous credit goes to, to those people in our, our community of wildland fire that deal with logistics and finance. They're kind of the hidden part of this organization that are really, really key to our success. Yeah, it's really amazing. Now, the the fire, the Dixie Fire, entered Lassen Volcanic National Park in early August, and it sounds like the 
the park's forests were extremely vulnerable to the fire because of the low moisture content out there. Well, um, obviously, like like all uh, vegetation in Northern California, um, exceptionally dry, somewhat drought stress, forest types, probably a little less so be because of elevation um, to some of the forest communities that burned and the shrubland communities that burned early in the history of the of the Dixie, knowing that the Dixie started at relatively low elevation in the Feather River Canyon and has now um, moved uh, across um, the crest of the Southern Cascades in Lassen National Park and is burning, you know, up to eight, 9,000 feet in the park. But um, fuels in the park are dry and um, the fire in several different runs has moved pretty aggressively in the park. There are, in the Lassen Volcanic National Park landscape, there are lots of natural barriers and we've been trying to use them to our advantage. So um, given the fact that it is uh, obviously a volcanic landscape um, has uh, really extensive um, volcanic features in the form of, of, of the peak, in the form of um, some lava flows. So we've been trying to use those to our advantage um, to, to get to some point of containment on this fire. Yeah, you've got the, the fantastic lava beds in the northeast corner, I know, and I guess Butte Lake uh, backs up to those. And so that's kind of provided some help. Uh, it certainly has. And actually, crews are in there today with the intent of, of trying to um, implement a firing operation, tying those two things together from uh, Butte Lake out to Highway 44 and, and moving that operation forward to the northern end of the fire. Now, um, I am curious how the fire has been attacked inside the park because a, a great expanse of the park is... Uh, I believe it's officially designated wilderness, and at the same at the same time, there are also higher priority areas outside of the park uh, because of nearby communities that are threatened by the the fire, the Dixie Fire. So, how do you how do you attack the fire inside the park, or is or is the emphasis strictly on structure protection? No, it's it, it is not um, strictly on structure protection. There there is a perimeter control strategy within in the park. So when we think about big fires uh, like the Dixie, um, there, there is a, um, a priority, definitely number one priority on protecting social values. So we're gonna focus a, a lot of resources and energy on communities, places like Chester and, and Mineral and Westwood and during those periods when those communities are threatened by fire spread. In the park, there's infrastructure, of course, um, high value visitor center that's relatively new, um, park structures at places like Juniper Lake and Warner Valley um, and over on Manzanita Lake on the north side. So there, there's a focus on um, actions that will protect that infrastructure. But we're very, very engaged on in trying to 
um, stop forward progress of this fire and doing that within the, the park as well as, as adjacent um, jurisdictions. And all the tools are, are, are being utilized um, to that end. Um, the park, as, as a place operationally for myself as an operations section chief, there's very little of the park landscape that is suitable for bulldozer use. So that question comes up to us a lot. Why are we not utilizing bulldozers in the park? We actually have, um, superintendent has authorized bulldozer uh, use in selected places in the park um, that fit into a bigger um, strategy that we think has, has probability of success. But the vast majority of the park is remote, very, very steep, very rocky. It's just not um, what we would consider good dozer ground. It's not a place where we can be effective with, with bulldozers. So we, we have uh, fortunately received um, a number of hotshot crews, type one hand crews over the last several shifts. They're engaged in the park. Um, uh, uh, building and improving uh, control line, preparing for firing operations um, to, to get us to some place of, of containment. We were successful in using a firing operation on uh, Highway 89, the Park Highway, um, from the area of the visitor center down to the junction of Highway 36. Um, as a way of stopping additional spread to the West. Um, that has been very successful. So we're hoping to uh, continue over the next several days to move that firing operation um, progressively to the northern end of the park, um, probably out of the park towards um, the footprint that we utilize on the reading fire. Uh, in and out of the park onto the Lassen Hat Creek District um, to ultimately get to some point of stopping forward progression of this fire. Yeah. So all the tools are on the table. We're talking with Robin Wills, the National Park Service's Chief of Fire and Aviation for the Pacific West Region. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, 
all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. We're talking today with Robin Wills, the National Park Service's Chief of Fire and Aviation for the Pacific West Region, about the Dixie Fire in California and its uh, march through Lassen Volcanic National Park and elsewhere in the Northern California. Robin, is the, is the fire primarily on the eastern side of Lassen, or has it has it moved across to the west as well? I mean, you mentioned the uh, the firing operations around uh, uh, the the visitor center to um, remove. Uh, potential fuels as well as up around uh, Manzanita Lake area. Yeah, so the fire has moved into the western portion of the park, if we think about kind of splitting the park in half. And as I said earlier, um, progression to the west currently is held on the park highway uh, Highway 89, so we, we don't have additional fire west of Highway 89 uh, or west of the visitor center, if listeners are, are familiar with that. Um, but that has, has largely filled in kind of the center of the park. And again, for listeners who are familiar with the park, the fire has not progressed as of this morning um, north of the Summit Lake area. So that, that kind of gives you a sense of the box from Juniper Lake, Snag Lake on the east side, Butte Lake, um, over to the Park Highway and then north towards uh, somewhere around Summit Lake. Have you seen a, a mosaic pattern as the fire moves, or is it, uh, um, I hate to use the, the scorched earth uh, phrase, but um, what type of pattern is the fire taken? Yeah, so um, with all large fires, um, there there is a, a mix of severities. So e- even in some of these really dramatic um, large fire runs that um, would have the appearance of, of just... Um, uh, being 100% high severity, there, there's always a mix of severity types. So, um, you know, that's certainly true of, of the Dixie in the park landscape and understanding that the vegetation in the park is, is um, significantly broken um, in, in terms of, again, natural barriers, 
um, and changes in, in vegetation based on elevation and aspect. But I would say my observations um, being in, in the park during pretty active spread uh, of the Dixie, there, there's quite a bit of high severity um, in, in this landscape and in this particular fire. Um, many of the runs being driven by um, significant wind events um, like the, the northeast wind that we've been experiencing um, for the last several shifts, um, high, high wind speeds um, pushing fire pretty, pretty aggressively. So um, it is a mix of severity, um, fair amount of high severity um, in the park at this time. Now, back in 88, the Yellowstone Fire, which I'm most familiar with, it was actually a, a snowstorm in, in early September that really helped firefighters immensely in, in slowing that fire. Is that the what we're looking at with the Dixie, do you think? It's going to take a, a seasonal weather change? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful um, that we, we see some opportunities over the next uh, week or so to to get to a place of, of higher containment on this fire, or at least uh, the reduction in, in significant uh, spread to the north and spread to, to the west. I, I think that's possible. But th this fire will be burning um, on some portion of its perimeter, um, likely until we see a, a change in weather. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be the start of of significant snow um, in Northern California, but um, as we get later into um, the fall and we start to see um, a pretty significant reduction in the burn periods each day or that, that amount of time when fires can burn actively, a moderating of conditions and, and Ideally, eventually, the start of, of rain, that's um, it, going to be part of ending this, this fire. It's, I, I think that's, that, that's a likely outcome. Now, we saw this past uh, fire season that it's Sequoia National Park. I think there were some embers still smoldering after the winter um, deep inside the park. Is that, is that a new phenomenon? Um, I, it's, it's not a, a new phenomenon. It, it is possible and it, it, it does happen relatively rare, but we've experienced um, a number of times in the past where fires have some amount of heat has um, continued and survived uh, year to year or season to season. So I think what you're referring to, um, there, there is a giant sequoia um, that uh, is in the castle fire footprint, large um, complex of fires on the Sequoia National Forest and into the park in the 2020 fire season. There's a giant sequoia that still has heat in it um, from the 2020 fire season. So that, that does happen. It's pretty rare. It's, it's, it will happen in really large, heavy fuels um, in, in the, the case in point, uh, a giant sequoia, um, it, it can happen, yes. 
Now, with uh, the drought that we've seen and, and climate change uh, impacts, have they increased the challenges to, to fighting fires in the West? Uh, well, I, I, I think uh, the obvious answer is, is yes, it, it has increased the, the challenges um, in, a, in a number of different ways. You've probably heard often discussions about the, the increasing length, duration of fire seasons. It's a really significant challenge in terms of managing fatigue um, and having adequate resources um, for fighting large fires at this point for most of the months of a calendar year. It's a big challenge, and, and I believe that is a climate change signature. Of course, fires like the Dixie, but a um, number of fires that we're dealing with currently in Northern California, the Monument, uh, the McFarland, now the Caldor, they're, they're very resistant to control. They're, they're just not easy fires um, to, to engage and um, uh, gain permanent control. You know, the, the Dixie is a fire, um, obviously, really, really large perimeter. Um, and um, in many cases, we're just seeing places where we've stopped forward progress of, of the fire through the use of control lines, firing operations, whatever it is. Um, but really long duration holding of heat and spotting potential. So even um, many days or a week after kind of gaining that level of, of containment, um, still seeing that potential for those portions of the fire to spot, find receptive fuel outside of the control line, and then create additional fire spread. So that dryness, that receptive fuel bed is, um, is, is of course challenging, challenging us. And, and then lastly, as I said earlier, related to climate, um, you know, the intensity of some of these uh, specific weather patterns or disturbances, that's how large fires generally grow. They, they grow from discrete um, fire runs that are weather uh, specific. So, the Dixie has had a number of, of weather-driven days um, where weather aligned um, to create large fire growth, and then, and then you get big runs on fires. So we saw it again the other night on the Dixie. The intensity and potentially the frequency of those kinds of patterns um, it is changing and, and creating... Um, against significant challenges for firefighting on the ground. Yeah, I mean, firefighting is always uh, dangerous. Um, is it more dangerous because of these evolving conditions? Yeah, I would, I would say that it is. Um, it's certainly a very different fire environment than when I started my career um, in a more challenging fire environment. Um, and hence the, the 
the risk to firefighters, um, which has always been there, it's significant and, and it is changing. Can, can you point to some of the, the differences that makes it more dangerous? Things like um, fire behavior and um, the threats to firefighters on the ground, their ability to predict things like fire growth. So we talk often about, um, you know, so many of the slides that we have in our slide tray from the past may not represent well the the future. Hmm. So just the ability for firefighters to to really very accurately um, determine where fires are going to going to spread and how fast they're going to spread and what that means in terms of the safety of firefighters on the ground um, is is challenging. And the scope and scale of fire runs, you know, we've seen 15-mile runs on on the Dixie fire. Um, we, we've had a really outstanding safety record on the, the Dixie and, and a good safety record across incidents during the 21 fire season, um, but it's, it, is, it is challenging. The other thing that is always a significant risk for firefighters on the ground in forested um, areas are, um, are trees, falling trees, snags. Right. Um, and in the situation like we have now, even green trees, live trees, um, drought stress, drought weakened, and then fire impacted um, become a, a really significant hazard. Um, one, one of the greatest hazards for firefighters out on incidents is, is the threat of uh, tree fall, um, the hazard of, of snags, uh, dead trees, fire weakened, um, and working in that environment with a high density of, of um, aerial hazards. Um, so that, that too, I believe, is, is changing in nature um, as we see changes um, in climate and in the fire environment. Now, a little while ago, you mentioned a 15-mile run by the Dixie Fire. Can, can you put some time perspective on that, how quickly that run was accomplished? Uh, I, I won't, um, won't speculate. I don't uh, remember. I was there during that that period of time and in, engaged on the fire and um, exact time frames. I don't know, but over the course of a burning period, the fire moved 13, 15, uh, some odd miles um, in, in a very aggressive um wind-driven run. Now, with the proximity of communities to national parks in the western states, will that draw firefighting resources away from fires inside the parks as more work is required to protect those communities, do you think? Well, um, in, a, in a year like, like this or any, any busy fire year, we do engage very actively in the prioritization of incidents. And that prioritization um, drives 
firefighting resources. So right now, there are not enough of all kinds of things like aircraft, crews, engines, overhead um, to support all the requests that come in every day in the system. And so incidents are prioritized and regions are prioritized um, so that we, we do our best to um, manage this, this regional, national level of activity in a strategic way. So in, in many cases, obviously, we're gonna prioritize um, fighting fire that threatens um, communities versus fires that are occurring in more remote locations, which is often the case with parks. So we have a number of fires right now across the region um, that are essentially unstaffed because they, they're occurring in very remote places. They, um, they threaten very little in terms of social values, infrastructure, and or they have very, very low potential for spread and growth because um, they occur in places with lots of natural barriers. So yes, uh, if I'm answering your question correctly, um, fires in parks, it, it's not obviously always true and individual fires and in individual situations are, are considered analyzed uh, very carefully, but it's, it's higher probability you're gonna have resources on a, a fire like um, the Caldor, which threatens communities, or portions of the Dixie that threaten Susanville, Janesville, Chester, than in, inside Lassen National Park. That is correct. Must be a, a, a tough decision process in, in some some cases, for sure. It, it really is, and understanding that it happens at every scale. So locally, so how we prioritize resource allocations on an individual fire, how we prioritize and allocate resources um, at a region level or at a, a GAC like in Northern California, and how we allocate resources nationally. So um, resources from across the country and in many cases internationally, um, where, where do we send them? Do we prioritize them for Cedar Creek fire in Northern Washington or the Dixie in Northern California? So that active analysis of risk threats, needs, and I'll tell you that a really important part of how we allocate resources is probability of success. So are there fires that um, are smaller at this time seem like less of a threat than say the Dixie fire, but if we allocate some key resources to a new emerging fire, do we take that fire off off the books? Do we we eliminate the threat of that fire for future impacts? That um, is part of that prioritization process. 
Um, so all those things to, together, what are the threats? Um, what are the needs? But also what is the probability of success and what helps us strategically um, to manage um, this kind of global theater of fire um, across the country. So it, it is a complicated process and it's it's going on every day during the fire season. Um, it's a big part of what we do. We've been talking today with Robin Wills, the National Park Service's Chief of Fire and Aviation for the Pacific West region, about the Dixie Fire, um, specifically in California and Lassen Volcanic National Park, as well as the the changing fire climate out there in the the West. Robin, thanks so much for your insights uh, today, and uh, stay safe out there. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information on climate change in the parks and regular news and features exploring national parks and protected areas, visit nationalparkstraveler.org. And to ensure ongoing coverage of the parks and protected areas, please donate to support our work. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.